welcome to Inspiring Futures. I'm your host, Ed Cotton. This is a podcast where we talk about the how, what, and why of the future. How you doing? I'm good. Um, so let me do let me do a little intro. Uh, welcome to the latest episode of Inspiring Futures. Uh, this afternoon, my guest is Nick Ace of Collins. Uh, are you the executive creative director or creative director? What's what's your my new title is Chief Creative Officer. Chief Creative Officer. Oh and my you, god! But currently, it's I've been at Collins eight years in December. Oh yeah, but how um, were you promoted to Chief Creative Officer recently? Yeah, that actually hasn't been announced yet, but here you go. There's an explosion. Uh, cur- currently I'm partner, I'm partner and creative director, yeah. Okay, cool. Well, congratulations. Thank um, you. Could you give us a little uh, resume, accelerated resume? Oh my God, really? What took, um, you, to, what took you to where you are now? So, are you, yeah. It's my lovely wife. Hi. Um, you want to meet Ed? Okay. Hi, Ed. Um, so I started, <clears throat> excuse me, making t-shirts, record covers, flyers when I played drums in a bunch of bands in the late 90s um, into the early 2000s. What kind of bands were you in? Oh, my God. Uh, I was in like hardcore bands, metal bands, thrash bands. Um, probably my favorite name of any of the bands I was in was Wake Up Dead. Uh, <laughs> um, record still kind of holds up, to be honest with you. The record kind of holds up. Um, what, kind of, what, what genre did that fit into, Wake Up Dead? Some might say hardcore thrash. Some might say power violence. Um, <laughs> power of violence as a genre. So I hadn't said that genre out loud a long time. Um, Were you like Osborne, like uh, decapitating chickens on stage and stuff? No, 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 no. It was just like where I grew up in upstate New York, there's, there's a lot of energy, um, a lot of, it's so funny, Ed, whatever. Let's talk about this. So, I was at a wedding a couple of weeks back and I got to hang out with a bunch of people that I played in bands with, people maybe I hadn't seen since I moved away from Albany uh, 16 years ago. <laughs> and, you know, getting the time travel and check in 15 years later, we were like, yeah, you know, we never really asked ourselves when we were 18 if a bunch of people screaming and running into each other in a room. Like, <laughs> what was that a symptom of? But whatever, it was a great, uh, great life. It definitely taught you a lot about, you know, the DIY ethos, booking shows, putting a band together, putting recordings together, putting records together, making flyers, merchandise. Um, it really, uh, it really set me up for the job than I have now, as as crazy as that is to say. Um, from there, I guess work at all the record labels. Um, 
eventually, I think this was in 2008, 2009, after the market crashed, I took a job as creative director at a magazine called Frank, uh, which was like a hip hop and street culture magazine. Uh, from there, Frank had a lot of offshoots of the business where we were servicing clients like Casio, uh, Toyota Scion, and <clears throat> excuse me, uh, William Grant Liquors. So sort of the audience we had access to and the content we were creating, we we're doing that kind of stuff for them. Um, my goodness, probably so many jobs in between. And then in 2013, uh, landed at Collins. So how, how did you, so Frank, um, when you said helping, you kind of, when a brand like Cassia, William Grant came to you, they were asking you to do way more than just place ads. Yeah. 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 I would say, um, the dawn of it would have been. I think back in the day, what you would have referred to as advertorial, right? And then sort of expanded into what you now call branded content. Um, but it, it was amazing. What an amazing learning experience. It was like, we put out four issues a year. Every issue was themed. And, and you know, we did an issue on Cuba. We did an issue on the Gumball 3000, the seventh letter, graffiti, and art crew. We did an issue all about Ricky Powell, the photographer. We did an issue about Steve Olson, just like the most iconic skateboarder, surfer, just uh, surrogate uncle. Uh, and, and then with Casio, we were sort of expanding on our editorial point of view for content for them. So that could have been skateboarding, hip hop, um, anything that sort of fell within our general atmosphere. Uh, and then with Toyota, I mean, geez, that was one of the coolest opportunities. They moved me out to Los Angeles and I was just working on content for Toyota. So I got to work with Prince Paul. Um, I, over the years, I got to work with Wu-Tang, ASAP Mob, MF Doom, um, and the woman who really helped me out uh, over at Toyota, who had it up sign, was Jerry Yoshizu. And this woman was a visionary. She was the one that when they introduced the Scion cars back in, I want to say it was like 04, 03, she was looking at how much money they were spending on promo swag. She was like, wow, we are spending so much money on stickers and keychains. And she was one of the first to say, I can take that money and put bands on the road. I can put out records. I can, <clears throat> excuse me, host events, art shows, put out merchandise. And that's around the same time Ed, as the music industry, like coming out of Napster and LimeWire and Kazaa and all that stuff. And before they started making money again off Spotify, that's where brands like, Scion, Red Bull, and then subsequently Converse really kind of filled that gap um, in the music industry. Yeah, we did something, we called it brand democracy for Converse, mm -hmm. where we basically opened up the whole of the communication to creators. So we, we gave them uh, 30 seconds on MTV, an outdoor billboard. I mean, we, we pretty much with some, some amazing artists and some people got their first break by giving them basically a blank canvas. 
Oh my God. Well, so, it, it's. You know, that was all about, that was 2002, I think. It was all about the same time. Wow. Yeah, I love that you use this this term, first break. You know, Jerry, Jerry was booking people like uh, uh, David Cho before anybody. She was booking, um, who's that guy? I'm trying to think. This is so embarrassing. He's like a pretty well-regarded, producer dj now he did a bunch of stuff with taylor swift um this is whatever we're online we can google this um what's his name what's his name i'll remember it by the end this is gonna be when i remember it it's gonna be so embarrassing because this guy's like a global pop superstar anyways shout out to jerry yoshizu who was putting people on like that so early where that plays such a crucial role in my own development was that when you're working on a magazine, albeit a rather elevated quarterly, you're getting like 20 to 25 different stories in there and everything requires photography, color, type, illustration, like everything you can possibly think of. And a lot of the people that I worked with at the time, not at Frank, but just folks that were in the atmosphere, we were all broke together in New York City. And so a lot of photographers, uh, painters, illustrators that I would have brought into Frank, I would have been their first publish. And then years later, as we all got more successful, we still work together. Um, Monty Giuliano, who shoots everything you see on wearecollins.com, she's one of my best friends in the world. Um, she shot Criolo for our Brazil issue back in, I don't know, like 2009, 2010. When we became friends, we would just shoot stuff for our friend's dress shop in Brooklyn. Now she's I, easily one of the highest regarded uh, photographers in terms of branding. Yeah, um, I know, I know, I noticed you, you, you know, uh, we have a mutual connection in common, James Friedman. Do you James Freeman. Oh my God. What a great guy. Yeah. I know James from, um, from Scion. We used to go on the offsites together. Yeah. Uh, I loved his record label. I got to see him perform in so many places around the country. And then actually he was working at Ogilvy. He was doing something with James Murphy and IBM, I believe James Murphy from LCD sound system. Um, James Freeman had sort of, set up that entire thing if i'm not mistaken i'm sure other people deserve credit uh but i know james he's an amazing guy yeah yeah he he worked he was he worked for me and was part of the converse team um, oh wow yeah when we were doing that stuff so wait did you work on rubber tracks too no we were before that i mean we we worked on this whole open blind canvas thing and um what happened was it it was just i mean we we're going to say it's the smallest thing they ever did but um they got distracted they they decided for no apparent reason to move in a basketball or back in a basketball yeah and kind of like pulled all the money off the lifestyle and put it all into basketball so within a period of like months we'd moved away from all that stuff and we'd had, I mean, we'd had this kind of visual that we were showing, which is like opening our own recording studio, having our own record label. Yeah. 
it was in the kind of planning process, but um, that all got pushed to the side as we started making shoes for NBA players and, you know, bringing NBA players into Converse, which, uh, you know, it was an, it was an experiment, um, but it didn't, it, it seemed, yeah, it was true the brand's history, but it had to play a lot of catch up, you know, it was just almost too far for it to credibly move. How did that shake out? Is Converse still in the basketball game? I don't, I don't, I don't, I don't see them. I don't see them there anymore. Um, what happened was we, we came on board as an agency just when after Nike had bought them. Yeah, so really interesting moment. Uh, they yeah. paid, I can't remember the number, but they paid a, a bunch of millions of dollars. It was actually really a bargain, but it was still hundreds of millions of dollars. And yeah. uh, you know, their our challenge was, you know, basically. Now we've got money to advertise. How do we do it without screwing up the brand? You know, because it had never, it never advertised. It would always been just a complete grassroots phenomenon. Uh, so that was our first idea. Was basically, yeah, you do advertise, but you turn it into a, you know, a white space for for creators because that's true to the brand. And um, it was a lot of fun. That was probably the best thing I worked on. I actually, um, this is coincidental. One of my best friends in the world got married this weekend, and I think he had one of the first shows at Rubber Tracks. Uh, his podcast was exclusively recorded there um, and sponsored by Converse. It was called Going Off Track. Um, uh, Jonah Bayer is his name, and it's a, he's a music journalist. So, yeah, you guys were doing the Lord's work. Uh, back in the early to late aughts, uh, really just giving everybody a platform that yeah, couldn't was, find was, one. Yeah, yeah, it was it was a lot of fun, and um, yeah, I mean, I I I'd come from doing quite a lot of that work in in London. I, I set up a, a division of McCann with a few mm -hmm. other people, and that was just was fascinating for me because London was very much like New York where you could go out and you would run into filmmakers, fashion designers, artists. Mm -hmm. And um, out in San Francisco where we were, that just wasn't, doesn't happen. It's just a small place. Talk about that next. I'm, I really want to talk about that. Yeah. But, but yeah, go ahead. Like, uh, but, but yeah, just I, I, we've been doing that, and uh, and we'd worked for MTV, we'd worked for, for we've done some work for Rolling Rock, and it was all about, you know, trying to find the intersection of uh, of all these of all these cultures, and really try to work with people within those cultures to bring authenticity, you know, yeah, to 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 brands, and it was. Um, we did some crazy stuff, and we did some not good stuff, but it was. <laughs> It was a lot of it was a lot of fun, and um, the, the Converse thing was the first time I got back to once since I've been in the states. Anything that was close to what I'd been doing in London, um, and you know, it's it's hard to find that. You know, you end up working on huge brands like banks and yeah, the stuff. Not you're not always doing the culturally artistic, interesting stuff. What did you did you cut your teeth at agencies? Did you always start at agencies, or did you have a different background? Yeah, I started in I started in um, 
I started in media in a really boring job in media. I, I, I uh, worked in out of home advertising and I, oh, wow. I, I basically did all the data crunching. Um, and then I worked, then I started off in a consult. Uh, then I moved from there to a consulting part of McCann where we were sort of helping the global pitch team win global pitches because, because if some, you know, we were pitching something like UPS in 75 markets around the world, we had people who spoke like five languages and we'd be like part of the pitch planning team mm -hmm. or, or we'd get like these crazy assignments, like what is the future of, you know, women? What is the future of women in, what will women, what will be having the women in 2050? And so it was a really awesome job. And I, I did that for a couple of years. And then I went into the strategy side, planning side at McCann. Um, and then I moved over to the US. I worked in the Seattle office of McCann, working on a lot of local brands like baseball team and Apple nice. Commission. It was really interesting for me to go, instead of going to New York, which would have been more like of a analog for London, yeah i to go to sort of more heartland heartland america i think was really good because it, it sort of got me to think differently about what america is about yeah you know it's i, I want to hit the san francisco thing but i love that you said that think differently about what america's about because i have gotten to see so much of the country because of my job um and I, I don't, you know, subscribe to identity politics and all those kind of things. I really believe you, you can't truly know somewhere until you sat there and had dinner with somebody, spent a few days. Uh, and that's even just tip of the iceberg, a cursory glance into what life is like there. But I, I've probably said this other places. I, I think in our industry, especially like when you get into quant and qual studies, you know, you spend all this money and and you see somebody deliver this fairly compelling pitch on how this customer in this region of the country shops. And you're just like, you have no fucking clue how this person shops, what their life is like, where, um, where they see themselves in a couple, you don't. Like you're just making these assumptions because you wanna manipulate them into buying your soap, like relax. Um, <laughs> Uh, so I, I love that you said that because Seattle is such a, just like many places, such a special, very of its own cloth uh, kind of place. Um, I, I think you could say the same thing about so many places. I, I've spent so much time in work in Atlanta, in St. Louis, in Milwaukee, Detroit, you know, places that don't get as much play as they used to maybe like a hundred years ago, but are incredible cities that have completely crafted their own identity. Yeah, I, I, th I really like what you were saying about, um, you know, it, it, it's sort of this, this idea that we can control and understand, you know, yeah. we have these tools that allow us to control and understand what we fundamentally don't understand because all that, it's, it's a little bit like a, a lot of my podcast conversations kind of revolve around the same theme, which is of logic versus creativity. Yeah. So there's two forces that are kind of in battle. You know, we work in the businesses we work in because we don't want to work 
in those other businesses, right? Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we, we kind of like, um, and so the people, the people in those businesses need some structure. They need some sort of like boundaries setting mm-hmm. so they can kind of put that stuff into the bot the way that they think. And, um, you know, I, I'd rather, and I, and I have tried to do it, you know, like years ago we pitched Schwab and it was for like trading. And I said to everyone, look, I'm just going to make a film <laughs> with a day trader. And um, it was beautiful. You know, it was just, I knew mm-hmm. someone who had, who was really good at that. We talked to one person, but it was so rich. Like it was, it was the opposite of like 50 pages of quant data. Yeah. It was, here's this person, here's that, you know, and, and I, and I, and I, um, that's, you know, that sometimes we get those opportunities to do that, but sometimes we just, we're, we're so focused on the, on the logic side, um, because that's the way we think our clients want to think. Um, well, sometimes, yeah. right, sometimes not. Yeah. I think, you know, it's like logic or math. Right. Or sorry, like, like logic or poetry or, you know, um, reality, fantasy. There's, there's so many tensions there. And I think, I think it's important to establish a center where language helps someone understand why they're making decisions and who they're after and how they can speak to them authentically. I do think that's important, but it's not just that. And I think you lose the plot so much in the process that you forget. Um, Oh, sorry. Do you guys need this room? Okay. Um, I think you get so hung up on the process that you forget just how to make something that's good and interesting and will resonate with people. Um, I, I have so many examples of this. Like, I saw uh, something that was labeled a brand identity system the other day. And it was like torn paper and collages. <laughs> and they were like describing it. They're like, so we just threw paint on the images. And it's like, it's not really going to be used anywhere. It's a case study. And you try to apply logic to something that's natural and raw. You tried to say like, oh, you know what looks cool? Like as you're looking through things in the boardroom. I mean, this is <laughs> Did you hear that? You know what? You know what? This is. I don't really edit. It's just like everything happens. It's just, <laughs> that's part of like. This All right, is cool. Like the, this is like the like the least kind of post prod podcast you'll ever listen to. It's like that's cool. Yeah, that's cool. It, yeah, it's like it's the idea is to keep it like real and 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 whatever happens happens. Sirens happen. It's uh, cool. But yeah, you know, we we were talking about um, you know, systems and like. Yeah. So can I just finish my thought on this one? Yeah, yeah. It's like you, you were in a room and somebody, you were trying to get uh, one of your clients, one of your partners, whatever, to just point at something and describe it and see how they describe it and see what they're excited about or see how it might have an implication on their objective. 
And somebody points out like a punk flyer, right? From the 70s or the 80s. And they're like, yeah, it's that. And that's us. We're raw. And you're like, but if you understood it, where that voice emerges from and how those things are crafted, you would also understand that there's no way to put a system on it, right? Um, on the other side, this one I love. Did we talk about this last week when we met? It's like, I also want to just shout out my friend Jeffrey Nolte, the founder of Nolte, wearenolte.com, who has hosted me in his house all summer. And Jeff, if you're listening to this, your house is getting very clean. Um, Back in, I think it was 2014 or 2015, um, the MoMA had a show about the Matisse cutouts. Do you remember this? And for the next five years, every single brand, every cookie, cracker, yogurt, soda, water, soap, everything was like a design system that was informed by the Matisse cutouts. And they would use it. They would use it as they would use it in um, lectures. They would use it in, uh, excuse me, in case studies and symposiums, all these kind of things. And it's like the reason Matisse made those cutouts was he had such a crippling neurological disorder at the end of his life. And he said, what can I do with the art with my eye, my sense of composition, my light, how I know how to create art and the fact that my hands don't work the way they used to. And that's where that work comes from. That's a lot different than being like, I, I like the Matisse cutouts and now it's on my soda can. <laughs> um, maybe the bad side of where logic and reason don't often uh, mix. Yeah, so, I, mean, I, think, I think it goes back to that like, um... I think we, we talked in the in the um, in our pre-talk. We were talking that you were talking about like the issue. I the issue with design for me is it's it's both simple and very complex. Yeah. And Sorry, I'm going to move to another room. Sorry about that, my friend. You, this all kind of happened at once. I really apologize for. And you're like, no, Nick, I make the most unprecious raw podcast. It's totally fine. I'm like, well, let me try and fuck that up for you even more. <laughs> well, you know, I was just saying it was like, um, you know, what we were talking about, like design. It, it's so many things. It, it's complex and it's and it's simple. And at its worst, it's very simple. It's it's like it's how something looks. But when you make it complex, you go deeper, right? So you it, you know, it's I just had a conversation earlier today, it's another podcast, but we were talking about like why why design there's the thing called design thinking. So design thinking is much, much bigger than updating your can of beer yeah and so when you know if you start to think about what design is in its deepest sense then i think you don't get to cutouts unless they're relevant do you see what i mean because cutouts it just seems like 
that's a sort of aesthetic copying, superficial, everyone's doing it, I'm looking at it, versus really, really thinking about what you're trying to do with design. I, I this is hyper relevant um, to something that just happened <laughs> in the past couple of weeks was we were asked by Clubhouse. Um, are you familiar with Clubhouse? Oh yeah, yeah. We were asked to come up with a new story for them and a new app icon. And up until this point, the app icon was kind of perfect. Like they, they just focused on a different member of their community every month. So when you got the update, it was that person's face. Right, like it's just an active member of their community. And if you look at the sea of app icons on your phone, it really stands out because it's a face and it's not like a big dumb letter. And, you know, certainly we did a bunch of other stuff for them. We did uh, a word mark. Uh, we did a toolkit for their uh, visual identity to the story. But the, where we wanted to create a mnemonic and also have it born from something natural to the brand was we said, well, let's not get rid of the faces. And if you need an icon that says clubhouse, let's just have people hold the letter C, like over here, over here in front of the face, whatever. And they went nuts for it. Um, they, they went nuts for it and it launched a couple of weeks ago. It was kind of controversial on our side because everyone's like, well, that's not a logo. That's not an app icon. It's like, why are we talking about that? Um, at the same time, um, this guy who runs a studio also in New York went on a, uh, his podcast that has all of his employees on his podcast. And all they did was make fun of our work, uh, <laughs> on Clubhouse, uh, for 20 minutes. And I'm like, what, maybe you just don't know how to look at that. You know what I mean? Like, what were you looking for? This was born of utility and it was born of something that was natural to that brand and sometimes design can be that it doesn't just have to be like a cute letter every single time is that fair oh you're on mute my friend i think there's um yeah i mean it's just like everyone's framing things up as this under construction like is this a case study for under construction does it conform to um, yeah the expectations that we have Whereas, you know, there's another, another part of this conversation, which is, look, the big problem with design is it's to, it can be so derivative. It's just everyone's just copying the Matisse, you know, the cutouts, right? But you're going and saying, look, in a crowded environment, which is your phone, you got one thing that freaking stands out. Why would we walk away from, uh, from something that is so powerful that, that, that other people are looking for. And the only, the only reason, and, and then someone goes, well, that doesn't conform with our standards of what icons should look like. Yeah, quite right. It shouldn't because it stands <laughs> out. That's what we want. We, well, and even like, you know, take it outside of our media industry. I, I've seen this happen too. It's like, there's so many great record covers that you remember that are just a simple photograph or they were art directed into a simple photograph. And I've seen designers in the past be like, well, I wanna put my voice on the record cover so I can show everybody what I did. And they'll take a really elegant photograph and shrink it down and put all this junk on top of it. When in actuality, it's like, 
but it was already solved. Like it's doing what it needs to do. It has that provocative quality where it's sort of reaching out to you and you in the dissonant space between what you're seeing and what you might listen to, it makes sense what that looks like. That's a, a magical moment. Um, yeah, you're exactly right. You know, there's, um, there's a sort of humbleness that needs to come with design where you realize it's not just about you and your portfolio or showing up and like showing up and being like, well, look what we did. It's like, yeah, but was it right? Was it any good? And also to everything else you said, because access to tools and access to people has increased exponentially in the past 20 years, everything's kind of melting together. So the trends are more apparent than they ever were. Um, and I think we do a pretty good job at hopefully informing what's going to be a trend and not just following or copying the trends. I, I hope we do that. Yeah, and it's, it's, a t it's, a t it's, a tough, it's a tough balancing act. I mean, the whole uh, blanding, DTC blanding yeah. story. I mean, I just I just put up a piece on LinkedIn, which was just like, what's what the hell has happened to mattresses? You know, it's like, <laughs> well, well, mattress firms doing the best advertising period out there. Yeah. It's great ads, but they were the evil, evil giant. And uh, Casper's, of, you know, I was walking around Union Square and there's this like a standard furniture store. It says, come in and try your Casper mattress. And it's like, what's gone wrong here? Casper was the was the maverick that was, you know, coming to you in a box. And, you know, yeah. and in a very short period of time, it's now sort of falling into mass conformity. And, it, yeah. it, you know what I mean? It's sort of like, um, how, do you, how do you keep the spirit? You know, it's like the clubhouse face is the spirit. That's the spirit, the authentic spirit of mm -hmm. clubhouse. We're just using it and updating it and finding an interesting way to do it. But we, we want to keep that spirit alive. And I think the problem is that people move jobs. You know, people, there's no stewards for brands anymore. They're on, yeah. project, you know, I'm on my, what projects, what three projects can I do in a year that I can put on my resume so I can go somewhere else, you know? And, and, wow. And, and, no, and then you're out. And so there's, and then the founder's gone because he's cashed out in the IPO. So the, the, the original voice of the brand is, is no longer there. Um, so I think you get into this, I, get, I guess you get into this really challenging time where the, the, the visionaries, the founders, the creators are no longer at those brands because you're five years in, you're 10 years in, and a bunch of other people are sort of trying to hold this thing together. Yeah, I, I look, I think that's where companies like ours come in, though, a lot of the time. Like, it's either at dawn when you're trying to figure it out and nobody's seen it yet, or you've been kicking it around for a long time and maybe you got to empty out the bag and reorder it, right? Um, not, and, you know, Brian, I'm sure you've gone to know Brian, he's really, he's really serious about this, is like, we're not an A to B company. Like, we don't do that. We're not like, hey, you know what you guys need to do? You need to change everything about your brand. 
I, the reason we do research early is because we want to identify what is the general DNA of this brand and how can we expand upon it. And I, I think more often than not, that's, um, for me, that's eyes on the prize. Uh, I'm like, I, <laughs> and I, I'm kind of uh, averse to like the industry pubs and all that kind of stuff. And I think they all do, you know, a service. It's, it's great. But it's not helpful for me to see what everybody's doing and how everybody's talking about their stuff because I'm not trying to, I'm not trying to create brands for them. I'm trying to create brands for 7 billion people. Um, Like here's a, here's a great example. We did, maybe you saw this one. We did Crane. Um, That came out at the end of last year. There was a little bit of a delay because of COVID. Stationary company, right? 250 years old. People have asked us, they're like, how did you sell that in? Or that doesn't look like anything else. Or that's the end of blending and all these things. It's like, actually, it's again, born from the original DNA of the company. The the engraving techniques and the flourishes, those come from uh, security technology developed in the, 17th and 18th century to prevent counterfeiting on banknotes. Um, it's just artists and craftspeople turn them into flourishes to make them more delightful uh, or complex so that they could, uh, when they were stamped on the thing, yes, they prevented counterfeits, but they didn't look crazy, right? <laughs> um, and then we referenced the Art Nouveau period, which was, of course, part of Crane's DNA as they were growing, which is like, how does nature and civility play a role, not in opposition to industrialization and mechanization, but how can it meet that in the center and add a more ornamental human touch to things, right? Like, it's all born of where they were. It just, it took somebody to go and find that. Um, that, that's a lot different, you know, than. Well, it's kind of, yeah, it's kind yeah. of like this, this archeology, span you know, you, 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 what, what happens, I guess, is just people forget that, you know, they, they don't remember where they came from. And then you come in and you sort of remind them of these kind of moments that are actually really interesting. Um, the one, the, the, the Robin Hood thing is the one I was really fascinated by. Mm-hmm. Obviously, you're dealing with a, of a company that's on this just, you know, fast track trajectory. They're also in the news every day. Yeah. You know, and, and all around while you're trying to do this, you're trying to bring, bring this brand to life. And what I thought was fascinating is you sort of, um, well, there's two things I, I thought were really interesting. One was, you sort of envisioned a world, you created a space and a place for the brand to live that was well beyond the mark. And then I, the other thing I really liked was you understood that the brand had a sense of responsibility, that we're going to use our um, channels to be an educator, to be an informer, to, get these, to make these people smarter, 
yeah, we're not going to do that. You know, we're not going to, that's not going to be front of house, but it's going to be something we're going to do. And I love the combination of those two things, sort of a, a future visionary owning a world that is so different from anything in that space. And then at the same time, accepting and finding really clever ways to take that educational responsibility seriously. It's almost like really interesting to combine those two things. Do you want to talk, can you talk a little bit about? Well, yeah, works? I mean, all that credit goes to Ben Craig and Corinne and Tammy and Eric and you know everybody who touched that LA. I was actually just talking to Brian about this one this morning. It's like, that's also design, right? Like Ben Crick, Ben Crick is hands down my favorite designer on the planet. I, I really mean that. Um, I, I love him. I sat next to him for five years. I would say it's like Herb Lubalin, Saul Bass, Ben Crick for me. <laughs> um, and if you want Ben Crick to make your logo or your typography or your color palette, your guideline, you want to onboard people, like Ben Crick can do the hell out of that. But you don't call Ben Crick to just make you a guideline. Like he's a, he's a fucking genius. And, you know, I, and I say this as somebody who worked next to him and you know, just got to know him as a friend for so many years. Ben is looking at a few different things, right? And forgive me if I'm paraphrasing here, but you know, it's his story to tell. He's looking at, okay, well, we solve for this and we know generally what the core messaging is going to be, but what what context, what world does that sit in? And then if educating people is eyes on the prize, which certainly it should be in any sort of financial literacy or uh, investment application, it should also be delightful and it should mean something and it should establish a set and setting, right? And Ben and Corinne, hosted a world building workshop with Robinhood for, I want to say it was three days. They took them to Pixar. They took them to the Museum of the Exploratorium. I was actually in San Francisco for like a night when they were doing it. I stopped by the office and Ben had just meticulously curated hundreds of pages of Mobius artwork. Um, and they were able to take all of that and say, I mean, Jesus, that's so complicated to get a CEO, a CMO, a head of product, head of customer experience, whatever 30 clients were on the other side of that with all due respect. And then get them to commit to that and say, if we believe that participation is power, let's show them the world that we want them to participate in and build with us. Let's speak to them in that voice. Let's illustrate all the different aspects of it. Let's learn what we learned from the 50s and 60s all the way to the 80s of these sort of hyper-idealized post-apocalyptic futures and not do that. <laughs> um, 
let's give them a view into 20, 30 years in the future. Um, yeah, again, shouts out to the god, Ben Craig, uh, who really carried that thing with Corinne and Tammy and LA and Eric and everybody. But, you know, you might look at that and you could say, oh, is that illustration? Is that design? Is it storytelling? It's like, who cares? It's all design and it's effective in how it's able to communicate the message. Yeah, it was, it's one of the things I find really interesting, which is, you know, it, it's back to my point about complexity and simplicity. You know, you're creating a world for Robin Hood. That is a world that could extend so many different places. It, it could be in the lobby of their HQ. It can be across the internet. It can be on their planes. I don't know what the heck, you know, wherever you want it to be. Um, and what's interesting to me is like, where does the boundary begin and end? You know, where, what, what is, what is, uh, what is your concept of, what's possible what you should be allowed what you are allowed to do what do you have permission to do and where does that begin and end you ever think about that i think about it all the time yeah i mean but i i think add with some some of our partners it's helpful to write principles right um there's the more functional things like this not that or don'ts that you might see in a guideline but principles i think are really helpful because they can inspire people you can look at the document that's sitting in front of you and you can say um, you can say let me say goodbye i love you okay do you have a lighter Sorry about that, Ed. You can, whatever, you don't need to edit everything. Yeah, no, no. I mean, um, that's fine. Um, uh, so, sorry. I guess, I guess, I guess um, you were talking about principles. Yeah, it, I think those are, I think that's really helpful because it's, it gives you, uh, it gives you a way of making decisions, but it also gives you, obviously the autonomy, once you understand them, to go make your own thing. I think our best work is not just what goes on our site, but all the things that comes out after the fact. You know, Ed, like, I got a poster back in uh, Korean, but I don't speak Korean. <laughs> I don't, I don't write or read or speak in Korean. But a document that we provided and briefed a global team on, all of a sudden I'm getting all this delightful work in my inbox. And they're like, and another team in, in um, uh, Benelux was like, they made uh, a streetwear line out of our work. Um, another team made a song, right? <laughs> it, just as long as the teams that we're working with feel generally that they understand um, that they understand what they're meant to do and how it should sound and what talking points they should hit. 
that's design as well. Um, we, we intended for you to work that way. I know we're um, I know we're running up against a little bit of time, so I wanted to make sure that we covered this topic, which was uh, um, the new office. Oh yeah, I was yeah. just there three days ago. Because uh, we had a really interesting conversation about about that last time, and I just wanted to make sure that we talked about your philosophy, what you thought, what you were doing, the library aspect, the gathering aspect, the fact it's not really an office, it's something else. I thought was pretty interesting. Yeah, so I, I mean, you're probably having this conversation with a lot of people. Everybody's trying to figure it out right now. If, if you go back to end of February, beginning of March 2020, it, we, we were shook, right? We were shook. We were like, what do you mean we can't come to the office every day? That's how our work gets done. Um, and then I remember we did some trial runs, like leading up until like the full quarantine. And then, sorry, I got to shout out one other person, Kim Unger, who's our office manager. This woman, along with Brian and Claudia, over the course of two days, they made sure every single person at our company had a laptop, software, and high-speed high internet in their home. Like, that's insane that she pulled that off in two days. She was even doing great stuff like uh, shipping us notebooks and pens and whatever we need. Just like really thoughtful, um, especially when we weren't all together. What did we lose? Right. So first it was March. We're like, okay, we're going to check in the end of April. We'll probably be back at the office. Do you remember that? That it was, uh, I don't know, May, summer, August, that it was like next year. Over the course of that year, a lot of huge companies said, we are taking on a wholly remote policy. If you want to work at Google, Twitter, any of these amazing companies, um, you can work remote from here on out. And this might be the noisiest podcast that you've recorded yet. So the next thing that happens is over the summer, um, you know, we had folks that were on leases or had leases ending. They had roommates and they're just trying to figure out where they should go. And we had to move from being an East Coast, West Coast company to being a global, <laughs> global operation. You know, we, we were able to work all over the world up to this point, but we didn't have our staff all over the world. Um, Thomas Markovicius, who heads up motion at our company, he went back to Lithuania to be with his family, right? Susanna from Warsaw in Poland. I remember speaking with her, I want to say it was in June or July. And she was like, what do you think if I move to Honolulu? I've always wanted to learn how to serve. And I'm not saying these were tough conversations, but we had to approach it as what is the best place for people to be where their imaginations uh, can be stimulated and they can thrive. We, we couldn't be selfish. Ed. We couldn't be like, well, renew your lease because we might be back in the office by the end of the summer. That's ludicrous. And, you know, if you check in on those folks now, a year later, Thomas has come back to New York. Susanna is thriving in Hawaii. 
and has just become an even stronger designer, thinker, uh, artist than she was before. Maybe that's Hawaii. Maybe that's just her growing as a person. But we all managed to stick together through all that. Um, there was certainly huge learning curve with our clients and how we had to quickly redesign our engagements uh, because people were suddenly less accountable uh, than they would have been face to face. This is still not the same thing as face to face, like physically in a room. That's not even old school. I think that's just nature. Um, I'm certainly seeing your own face and other people's faces on black mirrors all day is one of the most wholly unnatural things in the world, but sure, we're getting to it. Okay. And I'm going to answer the question, I swear. So, um, feeling rather verbose today. So Brian, Brian never stops. You know, he, he will always find something new to imagine and something new to create. And we were towards the end of our lease at 88 University, which was like a second home to a lot of us. Um, I walked by it the other day just because I felt like it. Um, I spent so many years of my life there. And Brian said, well, a lot of our designers and a lot of our business managers and strategists are living in Brooklyn. Why don't we just get a space in Brooklyn? So if they feel like that they need to come somewhere, they have somewhere to go. Maybe they have roommates. Maybe their space at home is rather constrictive. Maybe they want to meet in person. So let's build a workshop space. So he went and got us this great space over on Grand uh, in Williamsburg. I was, I, I was there the other, what was it, Monday? Monday, no, Tuesday I was there. It's not even interesting for this conversation, but yes, Tuesday I was there. Um, and my favorite part about it is he brought the library back. Brian has a, a five or 6,000 <laughs> books in that library up until shutdown. Uh, Ed, or lockdown, whatever we're calling it now. Um, we had a librarian. We paid her full time to come to our office and Dewey Decimal the whole operation. <laughs> you can find anything in that library. And the reality is some of my best memories working in that company are in that library um, where we would just have an objective all of a sudden that we wanted to kick ideas around. You could just pull a book off the shelf at random or with intention. You know, so sometimes when you're in it, it's okay to pull a book of Kate Bush's poetry off the shelf and just put your head in a different space and see where it leads you. Um, Brian has a massive copy of, uh, of uh, Nemo, not Finding Nemo, but Nemo. Um, what, what, what's the original name of it? This is so embarrassing. The Adventures of Little Nemo, something like that. And every kind of book on philosophy, science, poetry, art, of course, design, and that so many great ideas at our company emerge from that library. So to get to walk in on Tuesday, even though it's still under construction, and see Brian's library fully intact, and actually looks even better than it did before, was a really sort of emotional experience. Um, on top of that, there's conference space, there's a meditation room, there's a kitchen. Um, 
there's workspaces for as many people as we would possibly need to host and it's optional. And I think, I, I hope more people want to start working that way because it is, it is great to be together when, especially after a year and a half, when you can set the intention. I mean, shit, I, I, I was pretty bold during the quarantine, you know, obviously getting tests and wearing masks and eating well, staying healthy. Um, but I traveled and there's this woman I work with, Dash Allison. Um, you hate to pick favorites, but she's, she's another genius, brand strategist, strategies, right? Whatever you want to call it. She's a genius thinker. And we were working on an assignment probably for about a month. And I think we had cracked it. And then I flew out to LA. She's the first person I called. We ended up getting dinner for five hours and we were just back. By the next morning, the assignment was solved, right? And all it took was, hey, you're a person, I'm a person, I'm glad we're together again. Let's just go make this thing. Um, so I, I hope people find ways to be together again, but setting an intention um, and having it feel more natural and effortless. Is that okay? Oh, you're on mute I'm again. I'm on mute again. Um, yeah, that's great. I, I, uh... This is your host, Ed Cotton. Thank you so much for listening to Inspiring Futures. Until next time.